Introducing Bluehost Cloud, ultra-fast WordPress hosting with 100% uptime. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Of course you do. And now you can have all three with Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost. With 100% uptime and incredibly speedy load times, your WordPress websites will be dependable and lightning fast on a global scale. Plus, your sites can handle even the biggest traffic spikes without going down or lagging. And with Bluehost Cloud, you get 24-7 WordPress priority support, meaning you're connected to WordPress experts anytime you need them. Not to mention, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. So, what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. A science story, huh? These NYU scientists, they... I felt, felt, I felt right. Right. But I was so and I just thought, well... I figured it out. It was that golden moment. Because science was on my side. Hi everyone, I'm Ben Lilly, and welcome to the Story Collider, where we bring you true personal stories about science. This week we're bringing you two stories about the resistance, from a scientist involved in uncovering the Flint water crisis to a sociologist who finds resistance in an unexpected place. Our first story this week is from Siddhartha Roy, who was recorded in February 2017 at the Oberon Theatre in Cambridge, Massachusetts. The theme was Light and Dark. So I was really, really angry, livid in fact. How could the state of Michigan's Department of Environmental Quality, MDEQ, insist that the water in Flint, Michigan was safe to drink? What kind of data did they have? Because our scientific evidence showed there was a clear problem. Come to think of it, where was the EPA? It had been a year since Flint uh, switched its water source to the Flint River and they were not treating the water as per federal law. Consequently, uh, their water had turned orange. It smelled like sewage. Uh, There were bacteria problems. People were complaining of skin rashes and other health problems. And then there was lead. Lead is a neurotoxin with no biological function in the body. It is especially harmful to Young fetuses, uh, children under the age of six, causes dropping IQ points, uh, developmental disabilities, a whole host of issues. So concerned about these things, a local grassroots organization led by parents, pastors, and activists uh, in Flint uh, started working with our research group to figure this out. And so in August 2015, uh, we sent them 300 water testing kits uh, so that they could go around the city uh, and sample. And amazingly, this this group of, you know, mostly women, mothers concerned about their children, uh, worked 16-hour days driving across town, making sure every zip code was covered, um, and they had a good estimate scientifically on what was going on in the the water. Closer to home, uh, in Blacksburg, Virginia, a bunch of 20-something scientists in training were working voluntarily uh, weekends, uh, um, you know, overnight, just to get those kits running, analyzing the samples, getting the numbers out. And the numbers showed there was a clear problem. So the next step for all of us was to call the residents with high lead. No one trains you to do stuff like this. 
So I wrote this script where I said, you know, I was like, you know, hi, my name is Sid, I'm from Virginia Tech, here are our results. I was also concerned that people on the phone would not understand me because I suffer from what I like to call a quiet American accent syndrome. <laughs> if you hadn't noticed. Uh, my accent is all over the place. One of my dates actually told me, you sound like a British Cheshire cat from Alice in Wonderland. <laughs> Anyway, but as we started calling residents, uh, you know, we did not know what to expect, but they started telling us their stories. Uh, some of these phone calls were five, ten minutes, some of them over an hour. They'd talk about how someone in their house was sick, uh, something was wrong with their family, issues with money. There was one phone call in particular I will never forget. Uh, there was this elderly woman with Hylvet, and I tell her, you cannot, you cannot drink this water. And she said... Um, so what do I do? And uh, I went, you can either buy bottled water or get a lead filter. And she asks me, how much is a lead filter? And I said, oh, it's, it's $30. You can buy it at Walmart. And she goes, well, I live on social welfare. There is no way I can afford $30 in the next two months. What do you tell her? How do you respond to something like this? Needless to say, I was, you know, shocked. Uh, you know, I mean, I kind of managed through that conversation, but I was too overwhelmed to go on. I couldn't make those phone calls. Another grad student, well, you know, valiantly stepped up, made the next 60 phone calls, told everyone what was going on. And he was also so shocked. He set up an online fundraiser and we raised some money to, to buy filters. Um, Amazingly, uh, MDQ, the, the state's premier agency, hinted to reporters that Flint residents were adding lead to their own water to gain attention. First off, I don't know how you do that. But if you manage to find a way, imagine an entire population of 100,000 people, you know, pulling together this amazing con, this amazing, uh, I mean, the conspiracy of it all to kind of mess with a few scientists at a local state agency. It was beyond ridiculous. We also started posting the results online because we thought we had an ethical obligation to get this out. And so MDEQ came after us. They said, this group, meaning this research group, specializes in looking for lead in water problems. They pull that rabbit out of the hat wherever they go. No mention of data or sampling protocols or what we did. We were fucking lead magicians, <laughs> all right? I, I wish I could show you, show you the purple suit I wear to my laboratory every day. It's exactly like the one John Cusack was forced to buy from Eugene Levy from the sappiest movie ever, Serendipity. <laughs> I also have a magic wand that I use to do all my experiments. Um, so concerned with this all, uh, Mark, my advisor, and I, we flew to Flint to hold a town hall meeting and a press conference uh, to stand next to the Flint residents who were doing all this work and give people the, the evidence that they needed. You know, we were issuing a public health advisory when the people who were paid to protect the public were not doing it. 
And amazingly, the day we were going to hold our press conference, a day before that, the city had called an emergency city council hearing uh, to talk about drinking water, and they had invited the public in. Now, no one know, knows this at the time, but I was at that meeting filming. And so the mayor and the water guys come in on stage, you know, give a short presentation, show how everything is fine, and then leave. And then people start you know, coming up and voicing their concerns. They're given two minutes to talk about some stuff, and then they're like, your time's up, please go. There was this one elderly woman who, who got up on stage and was, 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 you know, was continuing to like, talk. And the city councilman, this, this guy, goes, ma'am, if you, if you keep talking, I'll have you arrested. And I'm sitting there thinking, that was an empty threat. No way. I mean, come on. So she did, did not stop. She kept on talking. Uh, and then this guy repeated, ma'am, if you don't stop, I will have you arrested. And everyone joins in, the, uh, the other people. Um, Josh, that was the name of the guy, the city council guy, please don't do this. Please let this, these people speak. And then she did not stop. She went ahead and talked anyway. Well, two officers arrived arrested her and took her out of the city council hall. This happened. It's on tape. I recorded it. And so as I'm, as I'm walking out, I turned to Melissa Mays, who was one of the uh, city uh, citizen leaders, and I asked her, what the hell happened? And she goes, mm, yeah, that's, that's normal. Are you hungry? Let's, let's go have dinner. Um, so, you know, with this, I was clearly very mad. Uh, until this point, I was trying to be dispassionate, the, 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 the ideal of the scientist. You know, you come in, you present your data, you talk about what's, what's wrong, and then you walk away. Uh, I, I kind of managed to do that the next day at the actual press conference where we had, you know, a lot of people come in. Uh, I told them what the problem was. They were not crazy in, in what they were seeing and, and sensing and the issues that they were facing, that this was real and science was validating that. So at the end of it all, uh, it was, there were hugs and tears. There were people who were really grateful that we had come out and, and done this for them. So as we, I'm walking back to the hotel, uh, you know, I step into the lobby and I, and I see myself on television. It was the local ABC news channel that had covered the event. And, and two things popped into my head. The first was, is that a receding hairline? <laughs> Am I freaking losing hair over this? And two, because the state was insisting everything was fine and the federal EPA was still nowhere to be seen, it seemed like nothing was going to happen. I mean, it was good that there was awareness now and more people knew it was on TV, etc. But maybe this is as far as we could go. Ten days later, uh, a local pediatrician, Dr. Mona, came forward with her results showing uh, how instances of childhood lead poisoning had doubled in the city. A week after that, Michigan's governor acknowledged the problem, and they found the money to switch back to the original water source. Two months later, President Obama came in and declared a state of federal emergency, uh, and the whole world knew what was going on in, in Flint. Um, to date, uh, the, the city has received more than $600 million 
to kind of work on their water infrastructure, but also, you know, bottled water filters and the health nutrition education of, of Flint's children uh, for, in, for the coming decades. What was also fascinating is scientists at MDQ were criminally indicted for how they misused science. They actually committed scientific misconduct in how they sampled and showed there wasn't a problem when there was clearly a problem. These are civil servants who are paid to protect all of us. Uh, for them to commit something like this is beyond shocking. I mean, you hear about this in history and think, yeah, probably people were crazy back then. But it, it still happens. So I came away shocked, you know, disillusioned, but also uh, realized that uh, the Holocaust survivor, Ellie Weasel, was so right when he said... Uh, always take sides. Neutrality helps the oppressor, never the victim. So I hope the next time you see something, especially the scientists, the next time you see something, you do stand up with science by your side, like we did in Flint. Thank you. That was Siddhartha Roy. Sid is an environmental engineer and a PhD candidate in the Department of Civil and Environmental Engineering at Virginia Tech. He works with Dr. Mark Edwards researching corrosion failures in potable water infrastructure. And as you heard, he also serves as the student leader and communications director for the Virginia Tech Flint Water Study research team that helped uncover the Flint water crisis. Our second story today is from Ada Cheng. It was recorded in February 2017 at Union Hall in Brooklyn. The theme was... Who am I? I have a disclaimer. Um, I'm just recovering from cough, a cold, or flu, whatever that is. So this is not my usual sound. I usually sound very sexy. Uh, So I need to just apologize for that. Right. So recently, I have seen two extremes attitudes towards science. So on one hand, this administration reinforces a hostile climate and culture against science. On the other hand, I have seen people put science on pedestal and idolize it as if it were the solutions for our problems. So I just want to... I think it's important for us to keep in mind that science and scientists are cultural products, and we are shaped by the context within which we exist. So I'm a trained sociologist, and I want to use my research experience to show how science is not neutral, and it is influenced by various factors, including the researcher's identity worldview, and presuppositions. In other words, who we are shapes how we produce and the exact scholarship and research we produce. So after I received my master's degree, degree in 1994, I received a fellowship from Human Rights Watch here. It's an organization right here in New York. 
And I proposed to do a research on the human rights violations against migrant women domestic workers. And I'm not sure if people are familiar with that part of the history, because since the 1980s and 90s, many women from the Philippines, Indonesia, and Thailand, they would migrate to Hong Kong, Singapore, and Taiwan to work as living domestics. And so when, when I left Taiwan in 1991, there were already many Filipino women working there. And they would usually linger at a church on Sundays. And that really triggered my interest because as a feminist, I was very curious and interested in learning how their employee, particularly that relationship between the female employers and the domestics, and I also was very interested in learning what their experiences were like as foreigners in Taiwan. And when I was in the United States for the three years, there were a lot of human rights reports about the various uh, human rights violations against them, uh, emotional, psychological, physical, and sexual abuse. So Human Rights Watch Asia viewed this as a very timely proposal and accepted me as a fellow. So I arrived in Hong Kong in 1995, and I immediately went to the local shelters to interview these women. And my task was to understand the abuse against them. So these women were staying at the shelters because they managed to leave their employers and they all had conflicts or experienced some form of abuse. For example, they were cursed and yelled, they were hit, slapped, and beaten, they were deprived of food, um, they were not given proper accommodation, um, and they were forced to work for long hours, and some of them were forbidden to leave their house. So my questions focused on these aspects, and I will ask questions like, so what happened between you and your employers? What did employers do to you? How did employers treat you? So within a very short time, I was able to interview more than 50 women. And in addition to interviews, I was also able to review some of the court documents to corroborate their stories. So with these questions, I gained tremendous insights into how they were victimized and how they were victims. So here's the thing. I came into this research believing they were victims. Okay? So my questions focused on this. And the data I got confirmed that. And so the stories I was going to tell about these women were stories of extreme helplessness and stories of victimhood. That all changed when one day I interviewed a Sri Lanka woman at a shelter. She, through the interpreter, and she was waiting 
to find an employer because she just won her court case. She told me that for the several months when she was working with her employers, her employers would only pay her one-third of the total wage that she was supposed to pay. And they would force her to sign the receipts and force her to acknowledge that she received the full pay. So when she refused, they taunted her, they threatened that, that they were going to send her back to Sri Lanka. And, and these women oftentimes paid a lot of money to just go to other countries to work as domestic workers. So for fear of home safety, and, and she really wanted to and need to earn money, so she decided to sign. But instead of signing her name, she decided to, she signed the exact amount that she received in her own language without her employers understanding it. <laughs> At that moment, I realized I just missed something very important. In my own intent to capture these women as victims, I never saw them as agents capable of resistance. And in the West, we tend to think of resistance simply as marches, protests, and sittings. But these public displays of disobedience and defiance may not be accessible to all. So for these women, their resistance took subtle and covert forms, forms that may not be recognized and acknowledged by scholars, but were very essential to their survival. So after that, I expanded my research to the church grounds, to streets where many of these women gathered. And I included to women who were still with their employers with or without ambivalence. And I started to ask questions. So tell me, what did you do in response? What did you say in response? What did you do in private in response? What did you do in public in response? What did you tell your friends? What did you say in the church? And it turns out women used very different strategies for resistance. For example, they would laugh at their employer's English. Uh, Hong Kong, they don't speak English there. And then they would try to teach their employers a thing or two about the language. Or when they were instructed to clean the house a particular way, but they were clean in their own way, the final result is a clean house. Who cares? <laughs> right? And the church is the vital place where they were critical and criticized their employers' sexism, racism, classism, and xenophobia. So here's the thing. 
these women were not passive victims. They were not completely helpless and hopeless. And through these questions, I was able to see their agency. And I realized as a feminist and in my own passion as a feminist to understand and in some way to save these women pushed me to put them on a pedestal of victimhood. And it is through my own reflection and introspection that I was able to redesign my research and to ask different kind of questions. So the, at the end, the stories I told were not either or. They were not. I painted them neither as all powerful agents with all the choices in the world, nor as passive victims without any choices. So this is the important thing about science and what I'm afraid of under the current context. And what I want to show with my experience is that science and the research we produce is a process of construction and interpretation. And who we are shapes our worldview. The questions, how we frame the questions, the questions we ask, the data, how we interpret the data, and the conclusion that we draw. Detachment is, is a myth. Detachment is a myth. Neutrality is gained through reflection and introspection, not through a denial of one's own embeddedness. Thank you. That was Ada Cheng. Ada is a professor-turned-storyteller-improviser and stand-up comic. She was a tenured professor in sociology at DePaul University for 15 years. She resigned from her position to pursue theater and performance full-time in 2016. Her book, Standing Up, From Renegade Professor to Middle-Aged Comic, was published in December 2016 by Difference Press. Story Collider is proud to be an official partner of the March for Science taking place tomorrow on April 22nd in Washington, D.C. and cities around the country. Find more at storycollider.org. The Story Collider is grateful for the support of the Tiffany & Company Foundation and of Science Sandbox, a Simons Foundation initiative dedicated to engaging everyone with the process of science. Story Collider is produced by me, Liz Neely, Aaron Barker, Ari Daniel, Christine Gentry, Shane Hanlon, Rosie Waldron, Cassie Soliday, and Nissa Greenberg, with help from Farah Ahmad, Ellie Chen, and Skylar Bear. The podcast is produced by Zoe Saunders, and the theme music is by Ghost. Special thanks to Oberon and Union Hall for hosting the shows, and to all the scientists and others working to help communities like Flint, Michigan, which still does not, as of this recording, have clean water. Thanks for listening.
It's lunchtime at Tim Hortons, and we're serving up a special deal just for you. Our new $5.99 lunch deal includes your choice of any lunch sandwich and a side of crunchy kettle chips. Because what's lunch without a little crunch? And the sandwich choice is all yours, like a ham and Swiss, Chipotle chicken wrap, BLT, and more. Made to order just the way you like it. Tim Hortons' new lunch deal. Simple, delicious, and just $5.99. Now that's a good deal. Only at your neighborhood Tim's. U.S. only. Price and participation vary. Terms apply.